electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Courtney Reagan filling in tonight for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, and Bonowin Eisen. Tonight on Fast, a semi-smackdown. Micron shares posting their worst day since March. And it's not the only chip getting checked today. We sort through the winners and the losers in this space. Plus, we're all over the after-hours action in a couple of new names on the market. We're dialed into the calls from Airbnb and SoFi and bringing you all the details. And marijuana stocks getting snuffed out today. But are these names about to light up? We'll talk to the CEO of one cannabis competitor, just reported results of its own. But we start off with an earnings alert on the big mover of the day, Disney. That stock surging higher in the after hours. Let's get straight to Christina Partsinevelos with the details. Hi, Christina. Hi, Courtney. So the transformation from media legacy to direct-to-consumer conglomerate appears unabated with Disney's latest Q3 results. The company posted a larger-than-expected beat on the top line, coming in at 80 cents a share, with a beat with revenue at $17 billion. Disney's newest bread and butter, the almost two-year-old Disney Plus streaming platform, brought in 116 million paid subscribers, higher than expected. CEO Bob Chapek weighs in on the call right now. Numerous breakout hits from our beloved brands, including Pixar's Luca and Marvel's Loki, and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier have contributed to strong engagement and new subscriber growth in core Disney Plus markets. And we have continued to launch Disney Plus in new markets around the world. Though worth noting, the average monthly revenue per paid subscriber for Disney Plus decreased by 46 cents because they added new subscribers in India at a lower price point. And even though there are still no meet and greets with Mickey and Minnie, the theme park division posted its first profit since the start of the pandemic. Revenue at the parks, experiences and product segment jumped 307.6 percent to 4.3 billion. And recall, you know, the Marvel star Scarlett Johansson, who filed a lawsuit over the simultaneous release of Black Widow in theaters and on Disney Plus streaming, saying it breached her contract and hurt her financially. Well, the CEO, Bob Chapek, said on the call that it was the right strategy to meet the broadest possible audience and that they're doing what they believe is in their best interest of their constituents as well as the film. And I'll end just on this. They talked about the dividend just moments ago. They said that they won't, they don't anticipate bringing back the dividend or repurchasing any shares until uh, events have normalized. Back to you, Courtney. Very interesting. Wide-ranging report. Thank you very much, Christina. (laughs) And be sure to tune in to Mad Money tonight for Jim Cramer's exclusive interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. You're not going to want to miss it. Okay, gentlemen, let's trade it. Tim, I'm going to start with you. There was a lot to like in this quarter. A lot to like, and and the Bears are going to talk about that ARPU number. That's right, average revenue per user. Guy's cracking up because he was waiting for me to say it. But, but look, the, the subs are really extraordinary, and, and I think there was a much more muted expectations. Again, I was talking yesterday around 110. I think the street was around 113.67, something like that. So way ahead. And, and, you know, part of the reason for the ARPU, I think, is the blended with Hot Star and some of the dynamics that I think are ultimately great for the company. You know, you talk about cutting divs or no divs until no divs until the parks uh, and you know, the world has gotten back to normal. Look, 
Would Netflix ever pay a dividend? I mean, this is a streaming company. This is a DTC story. This is, you know, where I think a lot of people now are comfortable putting a a, a 10 times GMV multiple, which is what a lot of the analysts on the street do. Plus, then they put a a EPS multiple on their core business. That's what I do. And again, the hybrid multiple means I think Disney can trade higher. If you if you like if you like Netflix here, excuse me, um, then you you certainly are going to put that multiple on Disney. And so I thought it was a great number. Yeah, Disney shares are up 5% after hours on that result. Okay, you laughing at the poo-poo jokes no, over no, here? No, no, it's, 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 a, it's a fast money joke now, almost 15 years. Yeah. Yarp, and you laugh every time. I laugh every time. funny every time. the first time I said it, he's got to, he's got to continue to laugh. And we do, but it's a back and it's forth. Fun. And listen, Tim, I will tell you, if you watch the show, Tim has said for a while now that this stock was sort of spring-loaded into earnings, and it has been going sideways since May. And this might be the quarter to get us back to that basically 203 level we saw in March. What I took away on top of everything Tim just said with Park's number was really surprisingly good, which I think augurs well, understanding what's going on in the world right now. But the fact that you have a Park's number like that in this environment looking backwards is encouraging. The knock on Disney will be, has been, valuation. If you can wrap your arms around valuation, I think Disney can get up to 203. Ooh, Bonham, what do you think? 203, we're about 188 right now. Uh, two or three makes sense. I mean, I, I really think this is a situation where expectations were relatively muted and they actually beat expectations. And we've seen a lot of companies beat and then trade off here. The other panelists have mentioned that it's been trading sideways. But I would say I've dived that into, dive into that a little bit more and say this was really a story of either they are going to do well on subscriber growth and Disney Plus, Hulu, etc., or they are going to see robust growth from the parks. And to have both of them come together, if you look at Netflix uh, last release, that started to inform people in terms of what the expectations were around subgrowth and around ARPUs. I guess I'll throw my hat in there with the ARPU joke too. Um, <laughs> but seeing that all come together, lit- I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing it kind of manifest itself in the trading. I think you have more upside in the stock for those reasons. It's not an either or. It's a company that is hitting on other, all cylinders with still reopening catalyst to the upside. And Dan, what do you make of this? I think that the parks number was especially impressive, although maybe I'm not surprised. I have a lot of friends that actually did go to Disney for the, during the quarter with their families. There's more than just streaming here for sure to be liked. Yeah, I, I think the point about parks and experiences is about 25% of the whole as far as revenues are concerned. So these guys were talking about valuation a little bit. I mean, if you're going to start to value um, that streaming business at a bit higher somewhere, you know, it doesn't have to be a Netflix multiple, that sort of thing. You're going to get um, comfortable with maybe 36 times next year and maybe 28 times 2023. And, you know, listen, I, I would just say this. This stock coming into this print was down 1% on the year. Um, we've seen a lot of these call it reopening trades that gave back a lot of the gains that they had at some point um, at late Q1, early Q2, because we just started to price in best case scenarios in a way. So I, I agree with Bonwin. You know, the, the expectations were fairly muted in a way. You know, let's see if it could hold this 5% gain tomorrow. I just don't think there's any reason to probably chase it here. I think if you go back and look at the last few quarters where they've done better than expected, chasing the print has not been a great trade. And we also know that Listen, Delta, it may be in the rearview mirror in a few weeks. We just don't know. And just some of the kind of, I guess, that Southwest Airlines um, pre-announcement or warning that we got earlier in the week should give a lot of people pause on some of these trades. Um, You know, we may remain consolidating. This might be up or down 5 or 7% or something like that in either direction for, for maybe until we get into the fall. 
Tim, you know, Christina did mention, and you brought it up, no dividend or share repurchasing yet until things normalize, but they did have this nice quarter here at the parks, as we've been talking about. So how many quarters do you think it takes to bring that back? Or is it really Delta dependent, as Dan brings up? I think they're going to be cautious on this. And remember how shocked we were when we heard that Disney, which was a pristine balance sheet, was, was maybe going to be cutting this dividend. Um, and and you know, Dan noted, you know, where, where the revenue is right now for parks and experiences as a percentage of the whole. It was it was 37, 38 percent pre-pandemic. Now, I think that number is going to drop because, again, they've restructured the company. Uh, I, bo- I do believe this DTC business is is something that's going to continue to take more, you know, more share from the other businesses. But I, and I, I just want to get back to the, the scar, Joe. Um, you know, fiasco, because, I mean, look, whether it's Black Widow or whatever it is, what Disney proved through their PVOD, premium video on demand, is that they can they can absolutely dominate a release and they can do it on the streaming side. And that, you know, by the way, doesn't bode well for theaters, even though I think that the theater experience isn't going to go away entirely. Uh, I think that was a reaffirmation of the strength of the franchise, the strength of the brands, the strength of the studio as part of this flywheel effect that we say overall. So, uh, again, I, I think Disney showing that that pays off also in into the parks and experiences is, is what we expected. Guy, what do you make of the scar I felt like you wanted to jump in there. No, I don't even. How know do you line up on the I don't even know who he's talking about. What? I mean, is that a person? Are you serious? Isn't that the isn't that the character from that Lion's King or no? Oh my no, gosh. I don't know why. Scarlett that. Johansson. Well, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Yes. I'm a fan of Scarlett Johansson. I would think she was married to that good-looking guy from Canada for a while. What yep. was his name? Ryan. Ryan Reynolds. Gosling. Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Right. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, now, I do. I know. We talked about it on the show. Okay, now now right, she's married I, to Colin Jost, part listen, of the NBC family. I mean, family. I actually thought, I thought Disney handled it really poorly, but clearly it doesn't affect the stock at all. Again, it comes down to valuation. They're, you're talking about a stock that's going to probably earn $5.10 or so next year. That's a 38 multiple on a $190 stock. That's expensive. Now, if you're cool with that, which, by the way, it's been okay for a long time, then I think the stock is fine right here. Bono, and I want to go to you, but Bob Chapek just said on the call that we are seeing strong demand. When, when it comes to Delta, uh, the demand is continuing. Cancellations are around conventions, but the park reservations are good. How does that make you feel about uh, Delta and the non-impact that Chapek says he's seeing right now? I, I really don't think there's much of a way to feel about Delta other than uncertain. I mean, I really okay. think it's a binary situation. I doubt that people are going to withdraw anticipatorily when they've already spent so much money on um, on travel and hotel accommodations and things of that nature, not to mention the uh, psychological effects it likely has on your children. So uh, all, all of that said, I really think the Delta situation is quite binary. And for me to feel a certain way about it, I don't feel anything. I look at the facts, listen to what the CDC mandates, and that is how I feel about it. That's a good way to go. Listen to what the CDC has to say, I suppose. Dan, I want to give you a word before we bring in a guest here. Uh, let's bring in the guest, because I know who the guest is. He's got a lot smarter <laughs> things to say than I got. Tom Rogers. Wow. All right. Well, let's do it then. For more on Disney's quarter, let's bring in Tom Rogers, executive chairman at Engine Media. He's also a former NBC cable president and a CNBC contributor currently. Hi, Tom. It's great to have you here. I'm just going to open up the floor to you and let you give us some opening thoughts here on Disney. A lot of things to like. Subscriber numbers, what's happening at the parks. JPEG just saying strong demand continuing despite Delta. What do you make of this quarter? Well, I hate to bring down the euphoria about Disney Uh here. I think you should have cut me out and uh, let uh, (laughs) let it stand where it was. I I will say what is particularly impressive about the parks numbers is they did that off the back of no international travel. 
So the fact that they are able to put up those kind of part numbers show that there's a lot of domestic demand. And uh, I'm talking about the U.S. parks, of course. And that that uh, that says something about their flywheel, as Tim was saying. But this stock has been trading off of the streaming numbers and they do a wonderful job of putting up these Disney Plus headline numbers of 116. And I got to tell you, until they tell me where those subs are coming from and really break it down, I can't quite join the party of excitement yet. Um, I have a feeling that most of those were coming from Hotstar in Asia. And until they say what Disney Plus did domestically, which is really where we have some sense of how much competitive juice it really has. Remember, last quarter, they only put up a half a million uh, domestic Disney Plus subs. Uh, ESPN Plus, it looks like, did a million this quarter of incremental subs. Hulu looked like it did about the same. If Disney Plus didn't do at least those numbers with all the motion pictures that they were putting out that were intended one way or another to promote more streaming uh, Disney Plus subs, it's hard for me to, to get excited yet. And that, that's one of a number of questions here that I think they still got to answer. The, the People get excited about those headline subs, but the profitability of subs is really where Disney's transformation story is going to hit the rubber and hit the road. And, you know, when you, you look at what makes up their DTC revenue, Hulu Live, ESPN Plus, Hotstar, it's about 30 percent of revenues. Those are much, much lower margin businesses than we're looking at with Disney Plus. So a number of big questions I still have yet about uh, whether this uh, transition story to digital streaming is as rosy as I think people want it to be. Tom, what Courtney did not mention in her bio is the word stud. So I'll say it. Total stud. But let me ask, <laughs> just to play devil's advocate. Now You're waiting you. for that, right? That's, I know it's on your bio. I, I think I mean, he dressed I, up I, for you. He's looking particularly, I, particularly I, dapper today. I, I, I got to live up to the, the nomenclature here. I didn't know how else to appear if Guy was going to come out with that. Well, I clearly did, and you clearly were successful. But just to play devil's advocate, the street was looking for a loss direct to consumer operating income of about $540 million. It came in much better than expected. Still a loss, albeit, but of 293 does that suggest maybe the trajectory is better than people like me give them credit for? Well, I, I, th- I think the trajectory of top-line growth and subscriber growth is good. But again, it's what's, you know, what's underneath the hood there. Um, you know, a lot of Disney Plus subs come through Telco, come through Roku, come through Apple TV. When you see those revenue numbers, I don't think they're taking the 20 to 30 percent toll that those various partners take off the top in terms of what the, the, the real revenue is. What it all comes down to is really engagement. And, you know, you still have most analysts out there looking at YouTube, Netflix, and then Roblox and Fortnite taking up a lot more kids' entertainment time than Disney Plus is yet. So you, you have that. And then the, the, the parent company, Comcast, uh, um, uh, issues with Hulu still being unresolved. And you not only have a huge number that uh, Comcast is going to get paid for their one-third interest in Hulu, 
but it looks like it's really tying up in arbitration the whole question of uh, Disney's legitimacy and putting star name on it when Comcast is claiming it's really Hulu that went international. And that looks like it's much messier and needs to really be resolved for a unified offering of Disney Plus and Hulu to emerge, which ultimately, I think, is what will strengthen Disney's uh, streaming performance uh, substantially. And then they're out there with the name Star internationally, and Stars has sued them for not being able to use that name because it's confusing with stars. And that's a whole other overhang here in terms of the, the streaming story. So there are a lot of unanswered questions before I get too excited about just how good the sport <laughs> is. Their IR people are phenomenal, though. They know all they got to do is put out the headline number and the market gets excited. We, we do a lot of talk, of course, when we're talking about streaming and cables, about bundles. And you think that, that Disney needs to really figure out what their bundle is. You're not thinking that going niche kids is the way to do this long term. No, and I, and I think they are uh, going to have some real success as they bundle more. But today the bundle is a pricing bundle. You can get Hulu, ESPN Plus and Disney Plus for a bundled price. And I'm sure that's having some impact on the uh, performance of the sub, of sub numbers here. Uh, but I really think to take on Netflix, having a much more unified offering across their services is going to be a really important thing. Now, I will say they've done a hell of a good job uh, tying up sports rights for ESPN+. Plus. All the major sports contracts that they have re-entered here, they've gotten streaming rights. They clearly have a path to take ESPN+, Plus, where ESPN has left off uh, everything but the NBA, which come, it comes up in uh, 2025. And so they, they really got something to work with there. But, uh, you know, the other side of that is how fast is the decline of ESPN and the cable bundle going to be? Keep in mind, cable viewing, even with pandemic numbers, was down 20% year over year. Disney takes the biggest hit on that than anybody. And so they got a lot of hair coming at them on that one as well. That is a whole other thicket of issues. Thank you very much, Tom Rogers, for being here with us. You've given us an awful lot to think about and trade on. I'm going back to Dan Nathan because you went to Mr. Rogers. You wanted to get his thoughts. You have them. Hmm. What do you think? Did he change your yeah. mind on anything? He was a little bit more dour than the rest of the desk on this one. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, but Tom's been a raging bull on Netflix for years, and he's been coming on our show talking about it. And I think he makes a really good um, you know, point about what's going on with uh, ESPN as far as the TV subs, but also versus the rights. And I actually believe that live is going to be a really important part of this going forward. And if you look at the fact that, you know, we're just talking about Disney was flat, you know, heading into this print on the year. Well, you know what also was flat or down a little bit? is Netflix. And I think investors are starting to kind of rethink about what the growth trajectory is both here and internationally. Tom did mention a couple times that he wants to know who are the subs? What is the breakdown? Um, what is the breakdown here in the U.S. in particular where ARPU is going to be higher? Um, I do think that they're going to probably figure something out between Hulu and the bundle that they have and really figure out how to leverage uh, those live sports rights versus what they're losing over there at ESPN. So to me, I'm generally like fairly constructive on Disney. I just think that, again, what we were talking about, we started talking about the parks and the experiences, that sort of thing. And Tim made a great point. Yes, it was close to 40 percent of the total pre-pandemic. We will get back there um, and there's going to be a lot of pent up demand for it. And if you do get some of these things going right in the streaming, you will have a higher valuation. So I think it does grow into it. But right now, investors seem a bit unclear about the valuations for these streaming subs for both Disney and for Netflix. 
Fair enough. I still think at some point we're all going to figure out how many streaming services we really need, how much cable we really need. It's very confusing. I want to watch a show. I don't know where I'm supposed to well, go. We need a lot of CNBC. So Obviously. I mean, so I'm definitely still a cable subscriber and everyone should be in my very humble and biased opinion. Coming up, yes. we're sticking with the reopening theme and diving into earnings from Airbnb. That stock giving us another read on where travel demand stands. The details are coming up next. And later, sharing the Micron getting fried today as one analyst issues a big warning for the stock. We'll break that one down in just a few. Fast Money is back right after this quick break. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Airbnb. The company's call got underway at the top of the hour. Deirdre Bosa has been listening in. Debo, what you hearing? <laughs> I'm glad you've taken that up, Courtney. Uh, Airbnb's <laughs> business, of course, it has been resilient throughout the pandemic, remains so the past quarter. But looking ahead, the company expects volatility with the Delta variant and is already seeing an impact on bookings and higher cancellations. CEO Brancheschi, he kicked off the call from an Airbnb in Italy, and he said that even amid more uncertainty, he's expecting record revenue and adjusted EBITDA in the current quarter as people continue to travel. As for the second quarter, he said that they saw consistent strength in North America and a significant recovery in Europe. He also noted that revenue bookings, EBITDA margins, are now growing relative to not only last year amid the pandemic, but 
relative to 2019 levels as well. Now, home supply has been a key question this year as demand bounces back on that front. Active listings grew, the company says, and total supply overall is the highest that it's ever been on the platform. Long-term stays, those over 28 days, continues to be one of the fastest-growing segments. Chesky calling this a trend that he believes is here to stay. However, it did dip in the past quarter in terms of its makeup of total bookings to 19% from 24% in Q1. Uh, CFO Dave Stevenson attributed that to a rebound in shorter term stays. Airbnb is being a little more cautious on the end of the year, guys, saying that they don't know how willing people will be to travel in the fall versus the summer, which is seasonally very strong. Back to you, Courtney. Very interesting. Deirdre, if I can ask you a quick question before you go. If uh, Chesky is in Italy, what's he saying about the breakdown between the international Airbnb stays and domestically? Has he given any color on that yet? Yeah, so he said that North America continues to be strong. And remember, we did see throughout the pandemic that be a really strong part for the company Mm -hmm. uh, as people traveled more domestically. But cross-border travel, the company says, is bouncing back, an indication perhaps that he himself is in Italy. They also said that this year is very different than last year because even amid the Delta variant, borders are not being shut. That would be very different. And they are seeing that recovery, especially in Europe. Got it. Dee, thank you very much. All right, let's trade it. Bono, and I want to go to you. Italy sounds very nice. I wonder if he's like in a big old castle. I'd like to see the Airbnb that Mr. Chesky is in. But if you think about Airbnb as a possible trade, is this where you want to be or you want to look more traditional hotel type stays? What are you thinking here? Oh, would you rather? Ah, uh, well, yeah. I, I would definitely, <laughs> I definitely would rather be an Airbnb, but I will, I want to state a few concerns there. <clears throat> So if you look at the enterprise value of this company and you compare it to those traditional hotel chains that you mentioned, you look at Hilton, uh, you look at Marriott, Airbnb's enterprise value is about is greater than those two combined. If you take it a step further and you want to look at a Wynn or an MGM, other hotel names that also have other ancillary businesses or, or revenue streams, Airbnb is still larger than those, not in the same combined way. So I really have to kind of look to an Expedia or a Bookings or something like that to really kind of wrap my mind around valuation there. And I think that truly is the challenge right now. So yes, would you rather Airbnb for a litany of reasons, but the valuation is going to continue to be a struggle. They, they are going to have to really blow the doors off of earnings to justify that elevated um, enterprise value. Got it. Okay, shares down 5% after hours, we should remind everyone. Mr. Nathan, what do you think of the reopening? Is Airbnb a place you want to play? I think so. You know, the stock ran into this print, so that was kind of a difficult setup here. It doesn't have a lot of trading history. We know it went public um, in December at 68 bucks. It's down about 30% or 35% now, if it's down 5%, from the highs earlier um, in this year. And again, this goes back to, you know, Q1. Everyone was anticipating that we would have um, COVID um, in the rearview mirror by now. And then companies like this that really got decimated during the pandemic would be able to kind of grow into some of those valuations as they saw an acceleration possibly in some of the demand for these sorts of services, just as they had pre-pandemic. I'll just say this, you know, this company is truly disruptive when you think about gig economy stocks. This is not like the issues that, let's say, Uber and Lyft have. So I do think that they're going to have this opportunity to kind of prove out this business model and grow into that valuation. But it's going to be very murky for the next, I, I guess, for the balance of this year or so. Just keep an eye on that 130 level. It was a double bottom from May and July. And there's really no support, again, below that from purely a technical standpoint. So to me, that's the level 
gold. That's the line in the sand, 130. If you're playing it on the long side, that's where you want to stop it out. Got it. Good levels to watch. And Deirdre mentioned some interesting notes there about those long-term. Debo. Yeah, I can't forget Debo. About some of those long-term uh, trends falling to about 19% from 24%. So I guess people are going back home or back to work. We're just getting started here on Fast Money, though. Here's what's coming up next. It's a semi-slump. Micron falling hard as analysts turn sour on the stock. We're plugging into that one next. Plus, shares of Virgin Galactic leaving the stratosphere, but not in the direction they want. The traders are digging into what sent that stock into the red. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Micron plunging more than 6% today, seeing their worst loss since March. The move coming after Morgan Stanley downgraded the stock to equal weight and cut its price target by nearly 30% to 75 bucks. Analysts saying shares will likely be range-bound in an environment where memory chip prices start to decline. You can read more about the call on our website. Go to cnbc.com slash pro. Dan, what do you make of these moves? I mean, the note was interesting and basically pinning a lot of this on the DRAM prices. Transitory, Courtney. That's what I say. Transitory. Okay. Here's a, here's another example where we had some bottlenecks. We had some supply demand, um, you know, dynamics that were obviously very affected by um, the the lack of ability of supply and some weird demand uh, demand situations. I will say that there was a, a note out talking about weak um, consumer PC demand. So we're starting to see some of this st- stuff of bait, and it's just another indication that I think that we're probably going to get past some of these kind of bottlenecks in the not so distant future. The stock, you know. Is a bit of a train wreck. I mean, when you think about it, this is a very commoditized product here. It topped out back in April, and I think it topped out at a time where interest rates started to head lower, kind of sniffing out that some of these, um, you know, sort of situations um, with with commodity pricing in general were going to abate going forward. So, to me, from a technical standpoint, I think the break of 70 or so, uh, if that's coming, that's below the levels of where it was in December. So, to me, the whole setup in the space could be bad. We're going to look at Nvidia next week. Very different sort of. But that stock's up 50% on the year here. If there's any uh, disappointment there, I think the SMH was a false breakout, and you may see lower lows in the whole group. Yeah, had a nice year, but year-to-date pretty range-bound, and the note suggests it will stay that way. Guy, what do you make of Micron, and can you extrapolate this out to some of the other chip names? Well, what I make of Micron is on July 1st, when they reported, they actually raised CapEx, which actually spoke to strong DRAM demand. Yet analysts giving $110 price targets, anywhere from 100 to 115 that I saw back in early July. And then Morgan Stanley comes out with this bit of a blockbuster. So my first question is, what happened, you know, what did... What did Micron see on July 1st that Morgan Stanley's seeing now? It's become, once again, a commoditized name. For a long time, people said, you know what, we're through that. It's no longer commoditized. Well, this report, this note from Morgan Stanley suggests anything but. That would be my question to Micron. Well, the, 
what made this a controversial note on there was a few different angles to that. But one, just the, the late cycle nature of where we are. I mean, you know, that that's not what you've been hearing from a lot of other folks. And even as you get into the dynamics around the auto sector, some of this has been supply constraints. Some of this has been you know, totally covid related. Um, but but this is where uh, and Dan brought this up with the SMH, where the entire sector looked down the barrel of these types of comments today and, and make no mistake. You know, Micron is not even in the top 10 weightings of the SMH. So, in other words, the impact of this was not from directly the weighting of a stock taken down an index. It was a sense that it, this applies more broadly to semiconductors, even though, yes, NAM versus DRAM debate um, clearly they're on the side of NAND. And, I, you know, I, it's hard to argue. Bono, and so I want to give you the final word on that. Does that extrapolate for you across other chip names that just says this is not the time to put some money to work if you're bullish? Uh, I, I think it does. I think there's names like LAM Research that, that are a bit more diversified in terms of uh, the type of memory that they, that they offer, but you're seeing it kind of translate into the share price. The entire subsector kind of traded off with a bit of weakness. And, you know, there's been significant tailwinds to this space. And to have this late cycle thesis, you know, essentially, I mean, that, that, that doesn't bode well for the entire space. So I, like Dan, will be looking to NVIDIA next week to see uh, what type of numbers they release, and more importantly, how they guide in the tone of the, of the message that they deliver. Fair enough. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, we are going to get more on Micron Options later in the show. Coming up, TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers joins us to break down the cannabis company's big beat on earnings. We're rolling into that trade next. Plus, the earnings aren't over. We are keeping an eye on SoFi on the move after reporting its results. We've got those details on Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Truly out with earnings before the bell, the marijuana company beating on the top and bottom line. But shares still ended the day down nearly three and a half percent. For more on the results and the state of the cannabis industry, in- industry let's bring in Truly CEO Kim Rivers. Kim, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, what would you say are the big drivers of this quarter and why were investors disappointed here as your stock ended the day down three and a half percent? Yeah, I, I don't know that I can comment in terms of, um, you know, the volatility of the market. Um, you know, the cannabis sector is an interesting one in that we are, of course, listed on uh, the CSE uh, and not able to be listed on a U.S. exchange yet um, with respect to, you know, NASDAQ or, of course, NYSE. Uh, so it is, it is a bit of an interesting market uh, to watch. And hopefully someday soon that will change. And, um, you know, what we're focused on and what I'm focused on every day is the fundamentals of our company. Um, of course, we had strong growth and um, both top and bottom line. Uh, with you know 44% EBITDA margins and um, strongest EBITDA of, of the sector, um, and of course also looking forward to our our big acquisition uh, coming to a close here soon with our Harvest shareholders uh, announcing that transaction or successfully approving that transaction yesterday. That combined company, once we are closed, and um, if that were closed today, would head and shoulders be uh, the strongest company, the leading company on literally every metric, uh, both operationally and financially. So we feel like we're very uh, well positioned to take advantage of future catalysts and growth opportunities across the U.S. as the leading U.S. operator. Hey, Kim, it's Tim. Uh, congrats hey. on great numbers. And you know, hey. it's funny because you have industry leading EBITDA margins and on some level you're penalized for that. Can you can you the sense is that as you guys continue to expand on a national level, that your margins are going to suffer. Can you talk about that profile? Because, again, right now you are at the top of the heap. 
Absolutely, Tim, and thanks for the question. You know, I think that it's it's an interesting position to be in, right? And we actually took a different, had a different strategic approach to growth than our peer set in that we wanted to make sure that the fundamentals of our company were sound. We wanted to make sure that financially we had a strong um, and defensible position, that we were growing the right way. And again, not just top top line growth at all costs, but we're building a sustainable company. And so, um, which, we, which we've done. And um, as you mentioned, we've had industry leading margins. Um, certainly as we look to expand, which we've you know, signaled that we are going to do um, across the U.S. to become a lead, the leading U.S. operator, um, again, in all metrics across the U.S., certainly as we look to new markets, as we're developing markets, as we're um, looking to enter wholesale markets in a more robust way, absolutely there will be natural um, margin compression. However, um, and I think that this is important, um, you know, you're talking about, again, um, you know, in, in terms of the gross margin, you're talking about a 67% margin. So um, it, it is yep. a bit in can be a bit frustrating, and um, but you know what? We wouldn't have grown the company, I, I don't think, any other way. We know that we've got a, a, a very strong business that's, that's really rooted in fundamentals at our core, and, and we're just going to continue to perform and continue to execute because that's what we do. Kim, how do you attract a new user to your product? Someone that maybe is an adult, is well-educated, is interested, but still has a little bit of apprehension. I mean, isn't that someone that could be a key target for you? How do you, Are you asking them, for a get friend? them over the edge? Perhaps. Perhaps a friend, someone I know. You know. I'll give you my number. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, it, one, I think it's important to note that there are strict limitations in terms of how we can communicate as a cannabis company in the U.S. today. Right. Uh, so we do a lot of education. Um, that's really our primary method of communication. And we educate physicians uh, very regularly. We have a team of educators that go out into the community. We also do a lot of face-to-face um, education, whether it's uh, groups and organizations in the community as well as, of course, social media. Um, so social media and digital is one of our larger larger communication platforms. Um, we host educational seminars called True Talks. Um, and, and really, um, you know, we, we do try to lead with education because we do think that it's very important. And we think more and more Americans are interested in taking their health and their wellness and their state of mind and well-being into their own hands, which, of course, our product allows them to do. So we try and, and try and get in front of as many people as we can. Um, and really, I would say that our truly ever community our current uh, our current consumers are our best um, advertisers. So, you know, it's it's our job. We have strong loyalty metrics, over 75% strong repeat customers, and they love to talk about our product. And quite frankly, that's the best that's the best advertising that we, that we can do is have a strong product that works well, that people want to talk about and tell their friends about. Kim Rivers, CEO of Truly, thank you for joining us here today. Thanks. I'm going to tip it over to you, Tim. I know this well, is a sector you're interested in. What about this company in particular? Yeah, full disclosure, I have a core position in Leave in, in my cannabis ETF. And, and the things that Kim's talking about in terms of the addressable market growth, some of it is coming from uh, demographics that are really either folks that have never had any relationship with the plant or folks that actually have been very you know, negative on the plant. But if you look at the addressable market for cannabis in this country, state by state, they continue to come online. And so there's been a lot of disappointment in the markets. And Kim was asked about her stock performance. Look, cannabis stocks are down 30 to 40 percent off the highs. Yet this week we're in the middle of U.S. earnings season for cannabis companies. And the sequential growth is anywhere from kind of 5 to 20 percent off of a very high bar. Year over year, uh, you're talking about 100 to 150 percent growth. So these companies are growing. They're profitable. 
But most folks can't invest because some of the big institutional capital is not in this industry yet. So folks that are investing now are actually in ahead of a lot of big institutional capital. It's an interesting time. It is. It really is. There's a lot more to learn about it, I think, at least for me. Well, coming up, we're watching SoFi on the move after reporting earnings. We're digging into the details next. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on SoFi shares. The fintech firm are on the move in the after hours, down sharply. Look at that 11%. Let's get over to Kate Rogers. She's got the breakdown on the company's latest quarter. Hey, Kate. Hey, Court, that call is still underway, but this is SoFi's first report as a public company. The fintech company reporting a loss of 48 cents, but that loss included significant one-time charges related to its going public via SPAC merger. Now, revenues came in at $231 million for the quarter. This is SoFi's eighth consecutive quarter. The company says of accelerated growth in its membership up 113% year-on-year to 2.6 million members. Total products up 123% year-over-year. Galileo, the payments platform, business nearly doubled accounts. On the call, CEO Anthony Noto said financial services segment products, this includes SoFi Money, SoFi Invest, SoFi Credit Card, were nearly three times the number of its lending products. This is an inflection point as a year ago they were about nearly equal, he said. Growth in student loans drove largely the 14% year-over-year increase in lending segment products. Technology platform accounts increased 119% to nearly $79 million. That's thanks to existing client growth and new client acquisition by Galileo. Management reiterating its full-year 2021 guidance of adjusted net revenue of $980 million and adjusted EBITDA of $27 million. The stock, though, Courtney, as you mentioned, down more than 10%. Back over to you. Yeah, it sure is. Thank you very much, Kate. All right, let's trade SoFi. Dan Nathan, I'm going to you. What was most disappointing to you here in this report? First report as a public company, as Kate points yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, you, you never like to see a disappointing guide uh, right out of the gate here. And we're seeing that a lot of these companies that went public through SPAC. And we know that some of the disclosures prior to the, the SPAC mergers, you know, they're a little different than, than the traditional IPO fashion. Listen, I started buying this stock higher than where it closed today. It's obviously down 10%, but it did just rally from about $15. So expectations were not low. I just think with like a 15 billion dollar enterprise value when you see the mix shift of what they were talking about versus lending and financial products and some of these other products as it relates to so find money and such that's what i want to see so i just think that you know these guys um they call themselves a technology company i think they're going to make inroads um in the financial services space and i think it's likely to be um a, a, i think it's going to be Take it out at some point, I don't know when, at some point in the future, I think one of these big money center banks that are going to need to do some of the things in the demographic that SoFi is doing it, and maybe Anthony Noto, the CEO of this company, becomes the heir apparent of a big money center bank as they look to transform their business in the next few years. Hmm, that's an interesting prediction. Bonwin, does that make you more interested in the stock? You'll get it on sale if you buy it here. <laughs> you certainly will. From a technical standpoint, it has bounced off of that $15 or so intermediate um, technical support. So I, I think that is kind of like the place to look in terms of playing it from the long side. You know, if you look at the consumer, right, I, I think there are some things to like about this company. Savings rates are higher than they've been in recent past. And so that speaks to the type of credit quality of loan that they'll be able to um, create and then sell off. The one thing that I would keep my eye on, in addition to the other things that Dan mentioned, is this 
came up for order flow. If we continue to see regular, sorry, if we start to see regulation around that, and we start to poke that bear, I think that may be a, you know a downside risk. Now, when I compare that vis-a-vis to like a Robinhood, for example, I do expect the the negative. Um, uh, uh, the, the negative situation to be more muted there, but that is a potential pain point for the shares. Got it. We're going to keep watching those shares down less than 10% now, but still not looking pretty. Coming up, we're diving back into the options pits to see what traders are saying about the semi space. We'll have that trade coming up next. Welcome back to Fast Money. We dove deep into the semi-trade earlier, but now we want to take a look at what options players are saying about Micron. Let's get to Mike Coe to break down that action for us. Hello, Mike. Hi there. So, yeah, in Micron Technologies, we saw about four times the average daily put volume today. We also saw above average call volume, but the puts were a little bit more notable. The activity that I saw that was kind of notable to me was the August 27th weekly 65 strike puts. I saw someone pay 65 cents for 5,000 contracts. That was part of nearly 15,000 contracts and volume overall in those options. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that Micron shares could experience some further weakness over the coming weeks ahead. And we did see, incidentally, some similarly bearish activity in some other stocks in the space, including Western Digital. All right. Thank you very much, Mike. For more options action, be sure to turn in, tune into the full show, she said, tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, it's time for final trades already. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Virgin Galactic dropping another 5% today. The stock is now down nearly 14% since, the, since its earnings report just last week. Bono, when you flagged this move earlier, what's got you concerned here about this name? Yeah, I mean, the technicals. I mean, you, you truly can't trade this thing based on valuation. Uh, it's really about a secular trend for space travel and aeronautical engineering, use cases for leisure travel um, or commuter travel, as well as defense. Now, all of those things will lead you to buy into the trend. However, given the valuation and given how early we are in the stages, you've got to trade this thing off of technicals. $20 has seemed to be the line in the sand where this thing has gotten to before. I would wait until it got back around there before reevaluating uh, re my position. The last thing I'll say is that if you've listened to Dan or Guy or, or Tim or anybody else on the panel, you've probably got into this name around $10, $12, and it ran up to 50 I would assume you've taken some chips off of the table. If you have not, please wait to 20 and reevaluate. Mm, yeah, you're about 6 bucks from there, even with that 5% drop here today. And uh, those space names, man, not all of them, I guess, to the moon. We're going to do it. It's time for our final no, trade. No, stop. It's all gone so quickly, Court. It, it Great has. having you. Thank you for yes. being yeah, here tonight. Yeah, it's so fun, right? Fantastic. Time flies when you're having fun. Let's start with Mr. Bono and Eisen. Space, $20 is the level to look for. Okay, Dan Nathan. Hey, what a, what a day for Chamath Palihapitiya. He did all these SPACs. He had Open Door up 24%. He had Space down 5%. He had Clover up 10%. Now he's got SoFi down 10%. Um, just a smart guy. I mean, uh, I agree with Bono in, on the space. Big TAM there, though, long term. For me, so five, I can hold 15. I was wondering, is your final trade Shamath? Where were you going with that? Nice. Okay, Tim. <laughs> uh, also born out of a SPAC, DraftKings. Look out. Um, heading back near all-time highs. Similar dynamic around cannabis in that growing addressable market coming out of the shadows. The OSB market continues to consolidate, I think, 
they will be a consolidator. Betting on DraftKings and Guy. Courtney, will you be watching the Yankees of New York play the White Sox in Iowa tonight? Yes or no? Yes, of course. course Field of Dreams. Yes. Yes. Uh, Nasdaq, we're here by the stock. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.